0: This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happimon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India.
1: Hello and welcome to the special edition of uh, the National Security Conversation. 20 years ago on this day, on September 11, 2001, planes hijacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists crashed into the tin- Twin Towers in New York and the Pentagon building. The 9-11 attacks drew the United States into its longest war. According to a report from the Cost of War project at the Brown University, the war on terror cost United States some $8 trillion and killed 900,000 people, including United States military members, allied fighters, opposition fighters, civilians, journalists and humanitarian aid workers who were killed as a direct result of the war, whether by bombs, bullets or fire. Apart from this, there are uncounted numbers of those who died by way of displacement, disease and hunger caused by this war. The foundations of the post Cold War order appear less resilient after 20 years of war on terror than they did on September 11, when the United States was the sole superpower. A rising China bent on building its own global order in the shape of the Belt and Road Initiative poses a far more daunting challenge. Then there are uncertainties brought about by a global pandemic, COVID-19, that has sent economies into recession and killed millions around the globe. Where does the world stand today on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks? What is the state of the international system today as a result of the U.S. war on terror? What will be the legacy of America's longest war that ended in images of desperate Afghans falling from a rescue aeroplane reminiscent of the images of the man jumping out of the Twin Towers after 9-11? To discuss these issues, I have with me three distinguished guests. Professor Sirajah Mohan is the director of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. He's one of India's leading thinkers on foreign and security policy. He's the author of several acclaimed books, including Crossing the Rubicon and *Samudramanthan*. Tamanna Salikuddin is the director of South Asia programs at the United States Institute of Peace, where she oversees USIP's work on Pakistan and broader South Asia. She joined the USIP after 12 years in the US government, focused on South Asia and conflict resolution. And finally, Max Rodenbeck is the South Asia Bureau Chief of The Economist. He's a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the author of a critically acclaimed history of Cairo, the Egyptian capital. So welcome all of you to the National Security Conversation. Thank you for joining today. Let me begin with you, Professor Rajamohan, Uh, 20 years later, how do you assess the legacy of uh, 9-11 and the global war on terror that came in its wake. What has been the impact of the war on terror on the global balance of power? You're you're muted, uh,
0: Professor Alimohan. No, on the first part of the the legacy, no, I think there was so much of, uh, you know, over determination of the threats by the United States and the sense of fear that came in and the kind of motivations that the Al Qaeda and Bin Laden brought about, uh, both in retrospect, were excessive. I mean, if you look back at 20 years, uh, Bin Laden's goals uh, of uh, destroying American power, uh, of driving Americans out of the region, of un- of overthrowing the existing order in the Arab world, and of uh, mobilizing the you know the 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 faithful uh, against the infidel in one big fight, none of that has happened like many of the millenarian movements before uh, i think they've exhausted itself the moment is very deeply divided uh, in terms of its achievements looking at those who planned and motivated it, has uh, been uh, fairly limited in terms of their impact on on, on the world uh, they're still around uh, these kind of eruptions will continue to take place but i don't think they've made any fundamental difference to the international system the state uh, has come back much stronger uh, in the name of fighting terror whether in democracies or otherwise states found ways of coping with this challenge uh, across the board uh, and no uh, dramatic incident of the scale of 9-11 has taken place so states today are stronger in dealing with terrorism i don't know if it's good for democracy but states are, are found a way to deal with uh, terror so my sense is no fundamental change has taken place but on the balance of power you could make an argument The Americans spending $8 trillion, as you said, in the in the Europe now uh, and getting into a whole lot of uh, ill-conceived schemes uh, like promoting democracy in the Middle East, uh, looking for nuclear weapons that obviously were not there in Iraq. Uh, The adventures in the Middle East uh, actually gave China, I think, a time Mm -hmm. to consolidate itself. Uh, So in a sense, China's rise, uh, it had two decades of unhindered uh, opportunity. But my sense is the China's rise uh, and the new confrontation between US and China. I don't think the balance of power has changed so much that the US cannot come back. The US resources are strong, China has its own vulnerability, China has risen in the last 20 years. It poses a challenge to the US, uh, but that does not mean the US is fundamentally weakened uh, vis-a-vis China. So my sense the US, one of its curses uh, is that it has extraordinary margin for error. Uh, it keeps erring on that margins. but. Uh, it, it has the resources and the resilience uh, to come back and i think we're already seeing some of that
1: thank you uh, Tamara, let me come to you next um, you know this is an interesting point that uh, professor rajamohan made that uh, the the american war on terror somehow gave china the time to consolidate its power and 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 make an impact on the global stage but you know apart from that um, how do you make sense of this rather uh, crude irony uh, that after a two decade long global war on terror, there is soon going to be a Taliban led or Taliban government in Afghanistan, at least 14 of whose cabinet members are on the United Nations Security Council blacklist. So in in this context and in your judgment, uh, how successful was um, America's longest war?
2: Yeah, thank you very much for that, Happy Man, and happy to be here with you. I think this is a point, this is a time for some humility, right? Uh, It's easy for us to look back and say, this is where we went wrong, or this blame others, other countries did this, and we did this wrong. I mean, there were a lot of mistakes, I think, uh, first and foremost on the part of US foreign policy, but I think none of us could have foreseen. Uh, this complete rise of the Taliban in the way that the Taliban was able to take over Afghanistan is so quickly. Um, And it is, I think, a a failure of, uh, you know, we didn't win this war. I think we do need to be honest about that and, you know, lots of lives were lost, a lot of resources were spent, and a lot of time was spent. I think it is important to think about it from a US strategic perspective. As uh, Professor Mohan said, there is the the room for this error, that I think the US system is resilient enough to accept it. I think from a political uh, perspective, a domestic political perspective in the United States, uh, withdrawal at any point would have been messy, but, withdrawing in the end will largely be seen as something that is in U.S. national security interests. I, I would look at the war in, in two parts. One, really, uh, the real failure and misadventure was this idea that we could rebuild Afghanistan into a democracy, that we could install or help prop up a government um, that we found to be acceptable, and that really wasn't the case. I think fully understanding what is the myriad of Afghanistans, right? There is not one Afghanistan. And understanding the needs of people, understanding their desires is it was not something that our blunt military instrument could really accomplish. and And we tried for many years in many different ways. I think where we we're slightly more successful um, was obviously on the counterterrorism front. You could argue that there were no, further attacks like 9-11 in the United States. How much of that is actually due to our war in Afghanistan is debatable. Much of it may be from the hardening domestically and the increased uh, focus on terrorism. But I think in terms of diminution of Al-Qaeda and others, there could be, you could argue there were some successes. But in terms of how we're leaving Afghanistan, any of the progress, I would argue, in 20 years, yes, the U.S. had a part in it, but Afghans had a part in it. I don't think we should forget uh, the Afghan agency. Uh, You know, we often think Afghan women have come a long way. Yes, Afghan women themselves fought to come a long way. And I don't want to paint them as a monolith or as victims. So I do think this is, is a very mixed record and we have to acknowledge and have humility in um what we were not able to accomplish in afghanistan
1: fair, fair enough Taman. i think there are uh, you know questions related to uh, what do we do with uh, uh, what is happening in afghanistan i think those questions we'll come back to um, shortly but uh, max let me come to you with a larger uh, conceptual question here and that is you know the the whole um, the 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 logic of humanitarian intervention and, and regime change is, the, is that now a thing of the past, uh, wh- what then happens to the principles of human rights uh, when there is no superpower uh, or a coalition of willing, uh, willing to enforce them at a time when the UN is looking at its weakest, really, um, or was humanitarian intervention an ill-conceived idea to begin with? I think the contradiction really is this on the one hand, as uh, Professor Mohan said, you know, the state is back and pretty strongly so um, and, and that may have implications for democracy and human rights. On the other hand uh there is very little appetite in the international community to sort of go after the bad actors as it were um, what's your take on it max
3: well i think when we have, first we have to be careful that, that uh, you know there's a spectrum between humanitarian intervention and uh, regime change i mean we, it's it, it's not necessarily wise to lump them all in the same basket i mean are forms of intervention all of them may have some degree of altruism but ultimately they're expressions of power and who has the power to to do these kinds of things uh, obviously the united states was kind of you know, the dominant power in the world for such a long time. and when the United States wanted these things to happen, they tended to happen. Um, you know, clearly there's a there's a change in power structure, power relationships, and there's no question that there's this relative decline of the United States. I mean, it's a slow decline. you know this this uh, Afghan episode with its sort of uh, uh, rather humiliating end, is just one little you know, a, a marker along the way uh, and it's, it's not a decline because America is a, is, a, is a failure, it's just because the rest of the world is becoming richer and stronger. You know? So I mean this is, there's something inevitable about this. Um, and the question really in the, moving forward is, is, the, is who's going to build the kind of consensus that's needed. It's not, it's not a question of whether there will be no more interventions of any kind, but you need to build a consensus in the world to make such things happen. Who's going to make that happen? Uh, you know, is the U.S. Re- reverting more to working with its allies, unless as a lone actor, this seems to be clear under the Biden administration, and moving forward, it's likely to happen because of America's relative decline in power. So there is, you know, the, the West is still there, you know, and the West is still there as the, the force which basically constructed the post-World War II system. I mean, it's still in place weakened you know et cetera, et cetera. but there isn't anything right now that looks about to replace it uh, so the question is you know whether moving forward this west as a construct so-called west still remains attractive to the to the rest of the world does it still remain the sort of you know a, a pole of some kind a moral pole, perhaps to, to some degree about how to behave in the world um, and can it pull the rest of the world with it uh that's actually an open question um, and then the, the uh, and a very big part of that question is to what extent will this kind of West maintain an adversarial type of relationship to China and to China's allies? Increasingly, Russia is emerging as a straightforward ally of China. Uh, is this a polarization that's going to replicate the Cold War or, you know, will there be some wisdom out there and perhaps we can move beyond this sort of adversarial type relationship? So I think there's still a lot of questions uh, uh, out there. Um, you know but but the, the type of, of sort of you know a coalition intervention that we saw in the moment of unipolar American power in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, that is likely to have passed for now, uh, you know which may not be such a bad thing, uh, <laughs> frankly, but uh, I, I think we can say that that's probably passed for now, but there may still be other forms of humanitarian advent- uh, intervention when necessary, uh, perhaps with we would hope with a bit more wisdom uh, attached and less of the sort of mission creep uh, 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 uh failure which which infected the whole afghanistan project from the beginning
1: right max um, you know tamana let me let me take that question to you before i go or go go to professor rajmohan with a different question um you know is there any more appetite in the united states uh, today to set things right in the world or are we um, likely to witness a neo isolation isolationist foreign policy in the United States. uh, What impact will that have on on global security assets? What's your take?
2: I I do think that, the isolationist sort of tendencies and uh you find them both on the right and the left in the united states there is there's is a fatigue and a real exhaustion i think from two decades of war um and also i think there is some sense definitely after iraq there is questioning of whether uh sh- shaping everything through that terrorist lens um you know is it still that post 9 11 period and i would argue that is really over. And the real shift in US foreign policy is actually underway now, where you see for the first time since the Soviet collapse, a near peer competitor emerging in in the shape of China. And I think there's real bipartisan support in the United States for being tough on China. And so where you're going to see US action or US willingness to not be isolationist is, is going to be in the form of uh you know deterring china standing up to china but i think when it comes to humanitarian adventurism you are going to have some reticence right you're not going to get those uh full you know almost 100 votes in favor of going in to intervene in in some country that being said there are very few uh wars or conflicts left in this in the in the world that are purely civil conflicts you know whether they're conflicts in africa or the middle east or elsewhere these are great power conflicts right and russia and China are involved. And so I think you could see that being the motivation through which the United States can convince itself and convince its publics that it needs to go in and intervene someplace. But I would not underestimate the real sense of fatigue um, and questioning within systems, within Uh, military about post-Afghanistan. But I I don't think we will, you will, you will see the United States back out there. Uh, Again, sometimes we don't learn those lessons of the past. Um, I hope that this time when there is some intervention, obviously, I think there will be much more limited interventions. Um, And there are a lot more places that I think the United States would be willing to intervene in, in a limited factor, in a quieter way than these big splashy wars that you've seen over the last two decades.
1: Right, um, Professor Rajmohan, you know, if, you, if you look at the uh, international system today, probably we are looking at a lessening of some of the smaller conflicts uh, you know, around the world. But on the other hand, there seems to be a um, you know, spiking of the systemic tension as it were. Uh, there seems to be emerging a counterpole to the United States, Russia, um, China, Iran, and perhaps Pakistan, Turkey and Afghanistan, Taliban and Afghanistan. Uh, if that were to be accurate, if that assessment were to be accurate, what impact will this have on the international system? Are we looking at um, at the beginning of a new uh, cold war, quote-unquote,
0: or being paranoid about it? No, there is no question there is US-China rivalry, which is intensified. But I don't know if you can call it a Cold War uh, yet, uh, because the nature of the interdependence between US and China is so deep. They're still each other's largest trading partner. Uh, if you talk to Silicon Valley, if you talk to Wall Street, uh, if you, uh, they love China, they still want to make money on China. So it's not as if, you know, this still it's going to be long, long haul. But I think they talk about a counter coalition. That too, I think is premature. If the countries, all the countries you mentioned, every one of them will give their right hand if they can do a deal with the Americans. Hmm. So it's not as if they've shut the doors. I mean, Chinese have been teasing the Americans, telling the Goldman Sachs, please, you're welcome. Come back. Let's come to a new understanding. You leave Asia. We'll take care of it. So Chinese are teasing the Americans. They've not given up, but they fight back if Americans fight back. So the Russians, too. I mean, it's not as if they've taken a fundamental decision like the Soviet Union. They have to confront the... If the problem is they're not getting a reasonable deal from the terms. Uh, not that it's not a principle; uh, it is a it is a price that what they're negotiating, and they don't, they don't have it yet. Uh, but maybe someday they'll have. Turkey is a member of NATO, uh, so so I think you know Iran wants a nuclear deal, uh, and how again the problem of terms. In fact, if Iran helped the Americans into after 9/11, it was the Americans who kicked them teeth and said, "Look, you're part of the Axis of Evil." So I think it's I think we should jump to the conclusion that building coalitions is not easy. Uh, the, the bunch of countries you mentioned, even if you put them all of them together, they won't match America and Europe together, right? So to suggest somehow you know these guys are going to be at a counterpole, I mean there's nowhere near it. So I think US has its problems. But if you put US and Europe together, and Japan, which is an ally, I'm not even talking about the Quad and all just the three of them, historical allies. That is a powerful combination. I mean, they have the resources, capabilities. Uh, The question is whether they use it wisely is a different story. But as far as balance of power is concerned, I don't see uh, this coalition is anywhere near. Two of them are dysfunctional and uh, I don't see how they can uh, provide an alternative, throw in Pakistan, Iran. What can they do to shift the balance of power?
1: So how how is this tension between China and the United States going to play out eventually? Are they going to play out in? in peripheries, in the, in the South China Sea, in the in South Asian region, where is it going to sort of play out this tension?
0: It seems to cover everything. I mean, at this point, uh, not just, uh, you know, on the military side. Uh, Chinese would like to see Americans go home from the first island chain uh, so that their local hegemony can be kept. Uh, they think they owe themselves to build a new order in Asia that suits them. Uh, they going to attack. Uh, Americans are saying no. We're going to stick around. We're going to produce deterrence and balance of power. Uh, then it is not limited like the U.S. and Soviet Union uh, to purely strategic issues. Uh, they're talking about trade issues. They're talking about technology issues, the whole range of digital-related issues. So I think the the scale of the competition and the mm. issues at hand are far far wider. But they also have the interdependence as we talked about. So my sense is uh, there is going to be this a more complex uh, you know, uh, contestation. Uh, I think we should think of the 19th century Europe, where countries, Germany and England, a lot of collaboration, they fought, they did a lot of things. So, so my sense is we're going to see a fairly complicated confrontation uh, between the two of them. And uh, that is, I think, set. As Tamana said, look, uh, there is bipartisan consensus to push back against uh, China and to rebuild. And it's not just a foreign policy issue. It's a domestic issue as well. The U.S. thinks its manufacturing capacity, its uh, uh, skill and t- science and technology have been hollowed out by the Chinese competition. They need to come back, put in money, rebuild, do industrial policy and compete with China. So so I think it is a domestic policy as well. So I think it is a fairly deep and a structural conflict now. But I think uh, it is we are just at the beginning of it and how this plays out. But there are also areas of cooperation. Yesterday, uh, when President Biden and President Xi Jinping talked about uh, talked to each other, uh, there is question of climate change, uh, there are questions of uh, North Korea nuclear stuff. So those issues have not gone away. So as Biden said, look, they will compete where they must. They will cooperate where they can. So it is still one uh, as presenting both cooperation and competition rather than a complete a shutdown of the of the relationship.
1: Right, uh, Max. Let me let me sort of uh, bring in uh, Middle East a bit. I mean, you covered Middle East uh, for a uh, for a very long time. You know, one of the outcomes of the war on terror was the invasion of Iraq in 2003, allegedly to destroy WMD um, stocks maintained by the Saddam Hussein regime. How has this
3: impacted regional security in the Middle East, in your opinion? um in many ways I mean it's been rather catastrophic I mean and these things do all tie together I mean you know uh, uh, you know one of the reasons for the sad outcome in Afghanistan was because America never finished its job when it first invaded and diverted all its attention to invading Iraq on as we discovered you know false some of us said in the beginning false pretexts um so uh, there has been the the kind of shock and awe did reverberate across the Middle East from the American invasion of Iraq but with very catastrophic con- consequences. Uh, uh, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's you, you can't link absolutely everything that has happened subsequently to the American invasion in Iraq, but it it has had really serious consequences. I would say, well, you know, one of the the, the, the uh, uh, major ones is to turn Iran into a more belligerent player in the region. You know, Iran confronted by this you know uh, uh, a hostile superpower installing itself right next door to Iran in Iraq. Uh, it turned Iran into a much more aggressive player, which has had consequences all over the region. You know, in Syria, it's played out in Lebanon, it's played out in Yemen, and so on and so forth. Uh, the toppling of Saddam as that that type of leader to, for him to 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 to, to be overthrown uh, did have a sort of uh, a reverberation in, in in the sense that that sort of you know Arab nationalist dictator uh, became rather unfashionable. <laughs> you know, and then this had it its echoes in the Arab Spring ten years. Uh, later. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it was a seminal moment for the Middle East. Um, and, you know, also, it, in, ultimately, it's, it's led to America withdrawing from the Middle East. Uh, uh, you know, it, if one looks back to the previous decades, there was this notion that the world relied on Middle East oil, it was a vital ingredient, it was so important, and so on and so forth. Um, in the end, it turns out that just wasn't true. Uh, uh, in fact, the United States very quickly turned into the world's biggest oil producer when it started investing in its own, you know, fracking and so on and so forth, um, and has actually done without the Middle East. So that whole equation of the importance of oil has changed rather radically uh, in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, partly because America's felt the need to, to 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 reorganize itself, and actually America's military imprint in the Middle East has lessened considerably since then, from what it was even in the 1990s. So. Uh, you know, uh, there is no longer a real American presence, and it's the, the 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 fallout of that has allowed other countries to intervene. Iran is one of them, which has spread its influence. Russia has spread its influence also in 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 the direction of the Middle East, which had not at all been the case before uh, the American invasion of Iraq. So, um, you know, in terms of projection of American power, if you want world hegemony by the United States, the outcome of Iraq has been totally negative but but uh you know it's also been an object lesson for the limits of american power and what you can actually do with it and that's that's equally significant um but for i would say for the people of the middle east it has been a a, you know a pretty terrible outcome pretty terrible last 20 years in, in in most ways this is not in defense of saddam hussein or his regime which was equally awful but uh uh you know the 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 um uh sort of uh, the reverberation from from this massive invasion by a foreign completely alien you know culture and army into the middle of the middle east uh, has not had happy results in general for the region
1: right uh, Tamina, let me bring you in on the uh on an important question on everyone every, everyone's mind uh, the the credibility question here um you know has the u.s suffered a loss of credibility due to its bungled up withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, what lessons U.S. allies, partners and adversaries around the globe are going to draw from this, uh, in your opinion?
2: Is there is yeah. that a credibility problem? Sure. I mean, I think uh, after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the sudden collapse of the Kabul government, you know, m- most critics argue that U.S. credibility has dealt a you know huge blow. That allies won't trust the U.S. to keep its commitments. I think some of these are a little bit overblown, right? That cr- credibility is about whether an ally can, uh, you know, thinks what we mean in it, that we will be able to do what we say in a given situation. I think it's context specific. Um, I do think there has been a reputational blow in terms of when we talk about our competence, our commitment to human rights or for playing a leadership role in the international community. I think that is real and it will affect our credibility in the future. But I think as others here have argued, there is a real sense uh, that the United States in some ways is resilient. I think there will be more questions about competency and whether we really do have a plan to accomplish what we want next time, excuse me, next time we want to form a large coalition to accomplish a complicated task, right? But at the same time, um, that credibility comes back and in certain cases, I definitely think in economic cases when it comes to technology, there's a host of areas where our allies, where we work together, um, I think, Repairing credibility will take time, but I don't think it's impossible. And I, I think some of the criticism is a little bit overblown when it comes to you know, U.S. credibility here. I also think, let's be honest, our allies were with us for 20 years in Afghanistan and they saw um, what was happening in Afghanistan. And I think they all realized that this was an unwinnable war. It was unwinnable for us, even at the height of our surge. I think it is the method in which was, you know, withdrawal happened and sort of the very public nature of the collapse of Afghanistan that really impacts um, you know, the reputation at this moment. Um, but in the, in the greater scheme of things, I think the US can recover in terms of credibility. Thanks,
1: uh, so Rajamog, let me sort of ask you that question from a slightly different angle. Uh, if we look back at it, in some ways the uh, 9-11 attacks helped, um, uh, or let's say the, the war on terror helped uh, um, the, the facilitation of uh, stronger Indo-US ties, um, you know, bridging their views on terrorism, for instance. Uh, it also actually eventually led to the uh, India-Pakistan peace process um, in about 2007, 8 or so. Uh, Over two decades since then, the two countries have pursued closer strategic ties, animated by the growing threat from China's rise. In the aftermath of the Afghan debacle, um, you know, at least the withdrawal part of it, uh, will India be forced to revisit its strategy based on a quasi, quote-unquote, quasi alliance with the U.S. to balance China, or will it lead to a an even closer relationship uh, with the United States. Uh, what, what's your sort of take on this? No, I
0: had a chance to cover the developments very closely after 2001, and uh, that time I was in the Hindu. I mean, covering the diplomatic affairs. So, so it, the story was a little more complicated. So, in fact, uh, before 9/11 happened, uh, Bush administration was sending signals to Delhi: Look, forget Pakistan. China is going to be the problem. We've come here now, we believe China is our peer competitor, so we're going to focus on China and we want you there and forget Pakistan. so that was there. so in some sense 9 eleven complicated that that the u.s was pulled back into the uh, into into our Pakistan, rebuild that relationship and uh, try and you know so the it took its eyes off on the on the us question at least in the first term. so therefore I would say uh, it was not because of 9 eleven that India-US relations improved. And I think what happened was terrorism issue, there was more sensitivity to India's interests. And more importantly, I think the US was willing to dehyphenate the relationship with India and Pakistan. They said, look, we're going to deal with both of us. We have different interests. So I think it helped uh, to sort out the relationship, but you couldn't, you know, counterfactually, you could argue if there was no 9-11, India and US would have done perhaps even more Uh, focused on on the East. But today, I think on the credibility question or further, look, uh, when America is saying, look, we're going to turn to Indo-Pacific. To keep fighting a war that was unwinnable was not going to increase the credibility. And all indications, whether it is Japan, Australia, India, they see, look, a concentration. Uh, India is slightly different from Japan. For Asia, a focus on China uh, would be welcome other than being stuck in the Middle East. Uh, For India, certainly. While the American withdrawal, we would have loved to have the Americans fight there forever uh, till the last American, but it was not going to happen. Uh, politics, you know, as a democracy, has only limited traction. So I think we were preparing to uh, deal with that reality. So my sense is, uh, for India at least, there, there will be problems in Afghanistan from the American withdrawal. But there is also going to be huge opportunities to strengthen cooperation, and we're going to see some of that at the Quad Summit uh, later this month. So my sense is now India-US relationship is no longer tied to Pakistan or to Afghanistan or to the terrorism issue. There are much bigger issues. So I think there is some sense of an autopilot out there. And, and my sense is things will keep moving uh, irrespective of the American withdrawal uh, from, uh, from, from Afghanistan.
1: Max, uh, this, this is an important question on everyone's mind. Let me also uh, bring you in on that uh, on that. Do you think the disorderly withdrawal uh, of the United States from Afghanistan uh, would cast doubts on the minds of its allies about the credibility of its commitment uh, regarding their security? What's
3: your take on that? Yeah, to a certain extent, of course, the initial reaction by a lot of the press and commentator has been, you know, look at America, what a catastrophe, what an unreliable ally. Then in the second breath, you find actually quite a different sort of assessment, I think, as as, as Raja was was suggesting. I mean, you know, I I, I think that there was a, 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 you know, in a clear-eyed view, Afghanistan, you know following you know soon after uh, uh, the fall of the taliban in afghanistan way back in 2001 uh, 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 was a very little strategic value to the united states objectively speaking it's not an important country for america i mean in many in many ways the extraordinary thing is to have stayed in, in afghanistan for 20 years at immense cost which is really a reflection of a slightly perverse kind of Incentive structure inside, uh, uh, you know, Washington. Actually, you know, where people were getting their medals from Afghanistan and so on, and no one wanted to end the war. Uh, So, in some ways, ending the Afghanistan war, messy, disastrous, stupid, you know, ugly, uh, uh, costly. uh, uh, it, it, It is actually. To some if you think a bit more objectively, it restores some American credibility to a certain degree. There are a lot of American allies who invested a lot in Afghanistan and didn't see any way out, and now there's a way out. It's over, it's finished, they don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, so I think, you know, in Delhi, for example, there's a lot of hand wringing about, my goodness, these Americans are kind of useless. Um, and, you know, but it, it, and India has had a long history of uh, um, uh, discovering stupid mistakes made by America and feeling happy that it wasn't involved in things like Vietnam and so on, Uh, and that is quite true. But I think India may also find that having, you know, America having exited Afghanistan, America is no longer vulnerable in Afghanistan, America could possibly be a more objective and realistic ally, it has no troubles with, has no reason to placate Pakistan now, for example, as it did in the past in order to keep its toehold in Afghanistan. So I I think there's there's, from the Indian perspective there's something you know so there are some positive sides to this that that haven't been you know adequately uh, seen. Um, But also you know there there should have been more realism I think in general uh, in in uh, how America's in in America about America's involvement in Afghanistan as with you know America's involvement in Europe for example I mean you know people take it for granted and uh, it's not a good idea to take such things for granted. Uh, People live you know happily live under the American sort of security power umbrella well, actually, you ought to look after yourself a bit more. Uh, you know, a country like India also should perhaps have had its own better intelligence about what was happening in India instead of simply blaming the Americans for making a mess and leaving in a hurry. Uh, so um, I think we are all more realistic perhaps now about yep. what the Americans can and cannot do, and that's possibly a good thing. Uh, uh, and I think the Americans will also be more careful about their use of power. So. Um, I think we're at a turning point and from now on there will be tests of uh, America's credibility Uh, and but I think I think people shouldn't just assume that this whole Afghan adventure is a great one single great object lesson in America's failure.
1: Right. Uh, Professor Rajmohan, the the Taliban has apparently invited uh, Pakistan, uh, China, Russia, Turkey, Iran and Qatar to attend the inaugural ceremony uh, of the uh, interim government. Earlier, China and Russia had actually abstained from voting in the UNS resolution on Afghanistan. What does it suggest to you? Does it suggest that the making of a new regional consensus of sorts with re- global implications or this is a convenient, friendship of convenience? Uh, what, what do you make of this?
0: In fact, uh, you said, so you talked about the inauguration of the Taliban's return. They were initially planning to do it on today, September 11. But I think the Pakistanis must have told them, look, don't be so stupid. I mean, we can be stupid, but not so stupid that you do it today. They seem to have postponed it uh, for another day. Uh, but but look, there is going to be no consensus. You can send out invitations. I mean, uh, uh, already the Russians seems to be having second thoughts. Uh, the Iranians, in fact, uh, in the first uh, week after August 15th, they said, we look forward to engaging blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you see the last one week, they have, they've been the strongest. Only country that, besides Tajikistan, uh, to oppose what's going on in Panjshir, they've accused Pakistan of sending troops into, into Panjshir Valley. Uh, so there is an. They see no Hazara or Shias in the, in the cabinet, and the Persian, you know, and the, you know the, uh, the Tajiks are close to the Persians. Uh, so you see them being you know, victimized. So, so I, I don't see. Everyone is going to make the calculation. If there is a consensus today, only two people have consensus. One is Beijing, one is Rawalpindi. They have a consensus of how to deal with Pakistan. They're partners in this. And I think China thinks Pakistan can deliver. Uh, and Pakistan has delivered a new government. It has delivered Taliban back into Kabul. So they and unlike in the 90s, where Pakistan had the manpower on the ground but didn't have the money nor a vision of what to do with uh you know free run they had in Islam in, in Afghanistan. Today, uh, maybe the Pakistani soldier and the Chinese capitalist can turn Afghanistan around. I mean, that is the dream. Now, but there are Iranian concerns, there are Indian concerns, there are Russians. We still don't know which way they're going to go. So I think, unless we assume Taliban has become come to love capitalism uh, and they will create a reasonable order. I mean, you could be authoritarian ruler who facilitates capitalism. Or, you know, but this is a pre-modern, pre-capitalist formation which first wants to fix the women, uh, fix all the minorities. You think they can build capitalism? I mean, I would be amazed. uh, So how much the Pakistanis can sell this pop, Uh, the pop will show its colors. uh, And and I think already you've seen in two weeks. But that doesn't mean uh, the West won't engage them. Uh, They still need Pakistan to deliver humanitarian assistance. They need them to get the evacuations done. And Pakistan is the one shop window to talk to the Taliban. So all that will happen, but but the contradictions are just beginning to unfold. And, and my sense is the biggest one we've seen uh, since is the is the Iranian problem. They didn't attend the Troika Plus meetings. Uh, I don't know how many people will go. Russians have said they are not going to attend the inauguration. So we have issues. So so this dream that you can produce a new consensus. This is what the Pakistani line is. Uh, good luck to them. But uh, knowing the region, I mean, my sense is uh, dream on, I would say.
1: Right. Um, Max, that's, that's, you know, um, as uh, Professor Rajamohan said, uh, if there is any consensus, that consensus is between Beijing and Rawalpindi. What do you think is going to be China's game plan in, in all of this? What is China's approach to Taliban going to be like? Will the Taliban be able to deliver on China's interest in the in training in extremism in, in Xinjiang? What, what's your sort of uh, uh,
3: estimate at this point of time? Well, I think you touch on the you know the biggest question mark in the world right now, which is what does China want? I mean, you know, and we're all slightly puzzling out to that. And you know, there there are dark views, there are lighter views. You know, uh, what does China want? I don't think we actually really know so well what China wants. Uh, but I think we can say how does China behave? One can see that uh, in general. The, what characterises Chinese behaviour in the world on the world, world stage is ultra extreme pragmatism. You know, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of uh, uh, one would imagine that China would want nothing to do in an objective fashion, nothing to do with a, an outfit like the Taliban. I mean, the Chinese abhor uh, this sort of Islamist extremism. They have their own methods for dealing with it in China. Uh, the Taliban. You know, after all, the, the current prime minister, new prime minister of Afghanistan, is the chap who blew up the Bamiyan Buddhas. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the greatest uh, sort of you know uh, artifact of uh, uh, of a sort of Eastern Chinese civilization, Chinese you might call it Chinese but, you know, Buddhism. Uh, you know, although they are communists, it's part of the same civilization to some extent. The, the the most you know impressive monument to Buddhism to the west of China was blown up by these same people. I mean, they have nothing in common. However. Uh, pragmatism is pragmatism uh, and I think that you know that this is a test of the Chinese-China-Pakistan relationship uh, as Raja very uh, accurately said I think the Chinese will consider now that Pakistan has delivered you know Pakistan may have been promis- promising this for years and years and years and years just give us time just give us time uh, now Pakistan has installed the regime at wants in in, in uh, pretty much in in Kabul I think the Chinese though will be waiting to see what happens next I mean what the chinese have done so far i mean they they have given a bit of di- a diplomatic recognition they proffered a, a little dose of aid i think the sum was 31 million dollars this is mostly vaccines you know soap <laughs> stuff like that it's not going to make a difference it's obviously just dipping a toe in the water i think the chinese will wait to see how things pan out uh, obviously they're they're you know ultimately. Uh, uh there may be um, rewards in pakistan as uh, in afghanistan such as you know its extraordinary mineral wealth and also projecting chinese power and we ha- we shouldn't forget also that china is an actual actually borders on afghanistan although there isn't even a road linking them there's a, there's basically a donkey track that links the two countries in this tiny uh, corridor but uh, so Ch- china will have will be projecting its influence in, in afghanistan but i don't know if they actually have a plan right now i mean i don't know what sort of afghan expertise they have even uh, the chinese so they're really relying on pakistan to guide them in this uh, for the time being uh, but i would suspect that if we look you know 10 years from now there's almost no question china will be afghanistan's major trading partner uh, biggest investor uh, you know this is very very likely to be the outcome
1: right uh, tamana you have dealt with the taliban while you were part of the us administration so let me ask you the most difficult question um how capable and interested uh, would the taliban be in uh, reigning in terrorist groups and extremist outfits operating out of um, or, or out of afghanistan I know that's not an easy question to ask, but you're the right person to answer that.
2: I mean, I think that's the million dollar question for the United States, right, is uh, the basis of the February 2020 deal really was, look, we need to get out, but can you take care of the international terrorist problem? And I think it is yet to be seen. You're asking it absolutely right. There's a capacity question and there's a willingness question. I think it depends on the group. So willingness, for example, in terms of ISKP, in terms of Daesh is high. It's, you know, the, the Taliban see them as the biggest external spoiler, as the biggest threat to their power and their regime. And I think they have complete willingness. Now, whether they actually have capacity, I would argue is a a much more difficult question. Uh, When you are sitting outside of government and fighting guerrilla warfare, it's much easier to to win. Uh, When you are trying to consolidate a whole country and hold it, um, you know, IS is far more, in a sense has a lot more leverage. It can launch opportunistic attacks like we've seen at the airport already. Um and the Taliban may not have the capacity to do so. I think the yeah. Taliban will suffer from uh, lack of expertise with you know a lot of experts trying to leave the country and uh, unwilling to be part of the regime, but also you, you know economic interests. I think this also ties into not just West concern about um, international terrorism, but it ties to China's plans as well. I mean, as uh, the other speakers have talked about it's unsure what China will do you know there's two parts China uh, as the economic, help that the Taliban need and want. But for China, Afghanistan is actually, while important, a very small minuscule market. And I don't think it will The economic, minerals, other things will not be determinative uh, for China as it looks out on all of BRI. Afghanistan is not that important. Um, But the second part of controlling terrorists and not allowing uh, groups to come into Xinjiang or to influence Xinjiang, they have been long looking for this. I mean, when we were, when I was in government, we had conversations with the Chinese because we felt that was the one area where the U.S. and China had a shared interest in Afghanistan. I think the problem was is that China is unwilling, and I think this is why the Taliban would want to work with them, to actually push um, Afghanistan or the Taliban to do anything um, so they can express what they want, but they've really outsourced that to Pakistan. And I think Pakistan uh, may not be capable of getting the Taliban to actually keep... Uh, the terrorists in line. I mean, I think you can see that in just the TTP attacks in Pakistan. Um, if if the Taliban is unable to control the TTP, I think larger groups and more, um, you know, more capable militant groups will may not be able to be controlled by the Taliban.
1: You, do you think uh, this is going to be a, a clever strategy of picking and choosing by the Taliban? You know, you go after some. Uh, you sustain some, uh, you protect some. Is that is that likely to be the strategy in your in your sort of estimation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's in their mind, it's not picking and choosing, right? There are groups that are allied with them. There are groups that they see as good groups who have long had ties with them, who have long supported them, whether it comes to capacity funding uh, inroads into places, whether it's Al-Qaeda and others, groups like TTP who have given bayat to them, they are not gonna go against those groups. And then there are groups very clearly like Daesh who are uh, you know, against them, who are, I think twofold. One, they disagree with Daesh and Daesh's sort of ideology. They have a completely separate ideology. But more than that, what people don't look at, you know, many members of Daesh are people who have left the Taliban, who have rejected Taliban and joined groups like Daesh. So part of it is maintaining the cohesion, which is so important to the Taliban internally. I think this interim government is a a perfect reflection of their need to maintain their cohesion as much as they'd like to make. Let's say there are leaders within the Taliban who understand the importance of an inclusive government, one that represents Tajiks and others. Um, The the need for cohesion uh, and unity within the organization is so important that they would rather come out with a government that you are seeing right now. Right. Professor
1: Rajamohan, um, you know, India has been quite hesitant about uh, opening contacts with the Taliban. Um, do you think India will be able to or how will India be able to secure its uh, interests, which uh, are terrorism on the terrorism question? Um, and, and will will um, uh, Pakistan play the spoiler sport? Uh, let's put it differently. What should be India's, India's Afghanistan policy at this point of time, in your, in your opinion?
0: No, a word about on terrorism on the you know, what Tamana pointed to the contradictions of Taliban. Look, if they be, if they behave reasonably and they do what they said they will do, which is they will control the terrorist organizations, the, the groups are going to say, including TTP, these guys are sold out to the Americans. These are American lackeys. And our whole job has been to fight the American lackeys. There's one more American lackey like the previous Ghani government. So they the ideological problem that Taliban has is fundamental. And if they can't control them, the neighbours, everyone is going to create uh, problems for them. So unless you had a genius, I mean, someone of the character of Mao or Stalin, who can, you know, ride over these contradictions, build a nation from out of extraordinarily difficult circumstances, uh, we're not we're not going to we're not seeing them. And in fact, the few moderates that seem to be visible, like Barada, uh, have been, uh, you know, have lost uh, ground in the political competition of the last uh, few weeks, thanks to uh, Pakistani friends. So I think there you are already, the moderates have lost ground. And I think that's going to be the problem for, for everyone. But India, I mean, I think the fact that ISI chief goes there, pulls out these people that, you know, Max was talking about, the people out of, from nowhere. Uh, and, you know, the, the uh, expectation that Mr. Baradar would become the prime minister was shattered because Barada was in Pakistani jails for eight years. Let's not forget that. So the internal balance, Pakistan is tilted in favor of one set of people, especially the Haqanis and the more conservative factions of the Pashtun tribes. And I think that is going to be that is a reality. So if India could have gone to Doha, talk to these guys like Stanigzai, we were talking, he said all the nice things. But poor chap is not even he's become a deputy foreign minister. So, so I think, look, Pakistan is the player in the politics of Taliban. And they're not waiting for India to show up and say, look, India, too, is a buddy-buddy with the, with the new regime. So so I think India should be, sometimes it's good to be patient, just wait, let the contradictions unfold. Uh, at this point, I think India should focus on, if Pakistan lets us to deliver humanitarian assistance, uh, or work with Iran or Tajikistan, whoever we can, deliver humanitarian assistance, which is very, very important. I think in the next few weeks, uh, that is going to be the big issue and the big strategic questions of how they behave those i think we just have to wait and see how it plays out i mean so we don't have to be in every play in the front and center of the stage so sometimes it's good to be stepping back and let the contradictions unfold because this is just the beginning of the of the drama and and uh, i don't think we should be so eager to be seen in the act 1 uh, play on, uh, of of the of the afghan scene one of afghan drama so i think uh, there was a british indian tradition called masterly inactivity uh, you step back you wait and watch don't rush in i mean when, uh, when uh, it's not really worth it so so i think in a, as a large power as a play it's working it's talking to the americans it has a line to the russians it is part of the seo it's in the sanctions committee uh, it's friends in the Gulf, Saudis in the UAE. They have the money bags. Though Qatar has outsmarted them today. Uh, those guys are going to come back. So there are enough people of India's friends who are interested, and enough convergence. So I think we should step back. So I think what Max was saying earlier. Look, I don't think anybody in the government has said, look, you know, Americans should not leave. Americans' credibility. That's really the public discourse. Well, the, the government had signals. Obama said in 2014 they want to wind it by 2014. Trump actually signed a deal with uh, the Emirate uh, and Biden has just completed it. So, so I think we knew that this was going to come. So we should debate and uh, see. I would say there will be more than enough contradictions to to deal with in the in the day side. And I think if Pakistan wants to be the interlocutor, take charge of the tar baby, I would say be my guest.
1: But Max, where do you stand on that? I mean, you know, there's an interesting argument in Delhi that uh... Um, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to be controlled by Pakistanis. Uh, what, what, what is, what, whatever is going to happen in Afghanistan is going to be, um, you know, remotely um, uh, controlled by the Pakistanis. So there's no point in uh, sweating it. Um, so let's let's sort of wait and watch, and don't don't. Uh, there's no need to sort of get into a conversation with the Taliban um, at all. Where where do you stand on this, or do you, or do you think that uh, you know, there's there's another argument which sort of talks about the need to dehyphenate. Uh, the Pakistan policy and Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan policy. Um, we, which way do you think India should um, um,
3: should ideally take, in your opinion? well i keep backing away from these either or alternatives uh, and i I would agree very strongly with Raja about the need for strategic patience i mean you know what what, the outcome we have right now in afghanistan is that islamabad is the address you know the pakistanis have got what they want they're the people that are, are going to be kind of calling the shots or at least pretending to call the shots until everything goes screwy all over again, which is quite likely, as Raja was suggesting, you know. So I think it's quite wise for India to wait. But I don't think, for example, a lot of the debate that goes particularly on in the press in India about should we recognize, should we not recognize, should we talk to, should we not talk to the Taliban? Well of course India should talk to the Taliban, you know, I mean that's it would be silly not to and uh, it's always good to have channels, you need them. I mean, you need them for all kinds of reasons. And India has discovered that in the past, in for example, hijacking incidents when they had no one to talk to. It's actually useful to have people to talk to. Uh, so uh, I don't think that's uh, actually an alternative that's, that's, that's reasonable. Uh, but I think also, uh, uh, you know, as Radio was saying, Uh, It's important to keep, I mean, India has a huge investment in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, three billion dollars in value over 20 years, but also just the amount of Indian aid, humanitarian assistance, human ties and so on and so forth. I think it's really important to keep that up. Uh, And, you know, uh, India also has an enormous number of Afghan refugees in India. I mean, the official number is something like, I think, 60,000. But many people believe it's perhaps double that number actually living in India. Uh, so India has a responsibility to those people and to maintain those kind of ties and also uh, humanitarian aid at this very crucial jun- juncture is important, you know. So I think, uh, you know, when it has to kind of uh, not so much, it's not a matter of decoupling, dehyphenating, uh, uh, you know, Afghanistan from, from Pakistan. But I think India does have a, a, an investment in the Afghan people that is worth preserving and maintaining for long term Indian goals, you know, if nothing else. Uh, uh, so that I think that's, that's, that's significant.
0: I was not saying don't talk at all. I mean, I think we need to engage them. We need to talk to them, but you know, but keep your expectations limited. So engaging them doesn't mean you, you're going to be the principal actor. Do keep channels open wherever you can get. That itself will make the Pakistani sweat. So that's not a bad bad thing. So keep talking, but that doesn't mean you have a, you, you don't recognize the current disposition of power. and uh, And it is not as if today Pakistan controls, but the contradictions, as I said, look, the, the current regime in Kabul is not a cohesive force. There will be others. Look, I think historically, if you say India, whoever is in Kabul has problems with Islamabad because nobody loves a hege- ne- hegemonic neighbor. So I think we, they will, one, at least one faction will inevitably turn to India. So I think you've got to at least give the time for that to emerge rather than we must be in the front and center of, uh, of the situation at this point.
1: But I have one more question and uh, I'll take that question to all three of you and then uh, we will we will end the program. And that is basically, uh, you know, are the foundations of the U.S.-led liberal international order less resilient today in the wake of the global war on terror? Um, uh, let, let me start with Tamanna and then we'll go to uh, Professor Mohan, and then end with Max. So Tamanna, over to you.
2: Uh, I I would quote Dr. Mohan in his uh, recent articles that, I mean, the the state system is so strong post this. I think that is an important factor to think about that. You know, at the beginning, after 9-11, people really argued that the the state to state conflict would not be what we are thinking about, that it is non-state actors that would become the dominant. threat to us. And I think that in 20 years, we have seen that that's not the case, that it is still state to state conflict and whether you are,
3: you know, it's really
2: proxies that you are dealing with in all of these non-state actors. And so there is a state behind it. I think that's one part. In terms of the liberal order, I think what has happened in the 20 years by, you know, this Whether you call it a bipolar world or or just so many different powers rising, uh, as others have talked about, that it's not that the U.S. is losing; that there are other powers rising. It is much harder, I think, to call out and hold accountable um, threats to that you know, basically illiberalism that is rising in many countries. Right? Whether it's human rights violations, uh, censorship, uh, freedom of civil society, minority rights, all of these issues that we're seeing not in just one place, but definitely across South Asia, across Southeast Asia, these illiberal tendencies are just much harder to call out. And I think as countries become more powerful and enmeshed with each other, for example, why is it so hard to call out China on certain things? It is really because you cannot have a zero sum game anymore. It is not that you are either on this side of the liberal order or on that side of the liberal order, you can't make those choices. And even as we talk about strategic competition with China, I think the the point has been made. Uh, The US can ask for certain things, can push for certain things, but in the end we are enmeshed with them in certain ways uh, economically, for first and foremost, that make it very difficult to push what we traditionally think as uh, the international liberal order. That being said, I think norms and practices uh, definitely under the Biden administration, democracy and these things will be at the forefront. How much credibility and how much power do we have to enforce those, I think, is the question that we need to ask. Right,
0: Professor Rajemar. Look, I think the, the liberal international order is a bit of a myth. It was no, this has never been liberal or international or order in any in that sense. It's really post-90 construction in Washington talk shops, which I think we shouldn't take all of that seriously. That comes out of uh, Washington. Uh, look at Afghanistan. Uh, when the Soviet intervention took place, it was the Americans. Who mobilized the Saudis and other jihadis? come and fight the Soviet, godless Soviet communists. And there was a communist regime, bad they were, commies, but they were doing reforms, probably too fast. It was a modernist, progressive, communist, yes, but a progressive regime trying to modernize Afghanistan. Here, the United States and entire Western world, the Chinese, everybody comes here. I remember the congressman as a you know, young professional in Delhi, showing up in uh, Peshawar, standing with the long beards, longer than mine. Freedom fighters, these were the freedom fighters. We're going to use this to produce freedom. Look, we've seen that. Now, if you tell me, look, Americans were doing liberalism all the time. You know, in Delhi, you did not see a gun before 1979. What the jihadi business did to South Asia, to Pakistan, to what Zia did to Pakistan because of the Afghan war, what it did to religious fundamentalism of all kinds in in the subcontinent. So, seventy. So, Afghan war didn't start in two thousand and one. It started in seventy nine. In fact, we would say Iran and Pakistan, Shah of Iran and Pakistan, tried to destabilize uh, the, uh, the the reasonably decent monarchy that that existed out there. And we had a series of events that that came in after that. So, the the worst elements, the most pre-modern elements, were mod, were brought in into South Asia to sit in the Afghan frontier and to fight what was a reasonably decent regime and that is the consequences that led to bin laden who Mm. was a child the bastard child of the jihad that americans backed and the whole west backed so so it was you know we we shouldn't forget that and take the slogans too easily that that is a longer history so i think what i'm not criticizing the americans now what has happened is water under the bridge can we now at least work together to produce a reasonable order that's that's what we have to think of rather than setting the standards which you can't enforce and go back to before you know sec, after second world war was spain a democracy to sit in nato was greece a democracy was turkey a democracy so this suggestion some of the west was always democratic and the institutions that created were always democratic is a myth. and at least those of us in india we shouldn't buy into this so I think it's good to be tell the American friends. Look, calm down. There are problems here. Uh, what you've done, unintended unintended consequences, have produced a set of results. So let's find ways of dealing with it rather than coming up with one more slogan uh, and and expecting everyone to buy into that.
1: Max, um, uh, Prof. Rajamohan has taken issue with uh, each part of it: liberal, international,
3: and order. Uh, mm-hmm. where, where do you stand on that? I agree, I agree with him wholeheartedly actually I think he's absolutely right uh, and I think he's also very right that I mean a lot of the so-called order that we talk about is an order that was constructed after World War Two in very specific circumstances I mean that is a long time ago that is many generations ago and actually the thought should be now of building new structures you know I mean that should be where our thoughts should be not of how to resurrect or keep alive something that is you know quite ancient and creaky uh, the other thing about the liberal world is I think you know we, you know, Afghanistan is one thing, but we live in the midst of a much bigger event, which is the, you know, COVID pandemic, and you know, I think that has that has, you know, concentrated minds to a certain degree on the failings inside every society, including the so-called, you know, democratic liberal societies. Um, there's an awful lot of house cleaning to do, and I think, you know, there should be a concentration on getting if if, there, if we want to see a liberal world order those countries that consider themselves liberal should be getting their own houses in order, uh, you know, uh, more seriously. Uh, and and this, this, the, the, the results of the, the pandemic should have taught a lesson that it's very important to do that. Um, you know, we, we need to get our democracies working better. You know, we need to get our judicial systems working better. We need to produce more justice and equity and so on, and better standards of living for our own people in you know, the, the so-called liberal world before starting to think about uh, wading into other places.
1: Fascinating discussion. Great insights. Thank you all so much for joining the show. Uh, Professor Mohan, Max, uh, Tamanna, uh, thank you so much for uh, sparing your time and and joining the show. And thank you everyone for uh, watching this live show. Thank you so much. Thank you
0: for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page, National Security Conversations with Happymon Jacob.